All right, this familiar passage, which begins in, in, in verse 17 of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul has some very forthright words. He's very direct in what he is saying. And uh, uh, we may wonder, well, what kind of a situation was he addressing here? And so verses 17 to 19, here are the, the words. And we're not going to read the whole passage. We'll just take it section by section. He says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Wait a minute. Is it possible that you come to church and it actually does more harm than good? Well, that's what he seems to be suggesting is happening here in Corinth. But he also tells us why. He says, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Now, he makes a distinction between division, which is a hurtful thing, and differences, which is a matter of opinion, it's a matter of taste, it's a matter of preference. Uh, and, And in that way, Grace and I discovered that we were incompatible on our honeymoon. Uh, you know, we, we were staying at, at, at friends' place because back then we were literally as, as poor as church mice. I had just graduated from Bible school. We were down in eastern Ontario. It was a beautiful morning, and I woke up early. I'm an early riser. I look out the window. There's this beautiful sunrise. So I woke up Grace. I said, look... Honey, look at that beautiful. And, and, and she was squinting against the light. She says, what? That's what you woke me up for? I said, oh, my goodness. She's a night owl. I'm an early bird. How can we ever survive? You know what? Next year we'll be celebrating 60 years together. Uh, and we've actually, <laughs> it's actually worked well. All right. We've learned to understand the differences, without allowing them to become divisions. That's the secret of it all. And so earlier Paul had written in his, in his letter to the same church uh, that there was divisions that they were vying about theology and who the best leader would be. And some were saying, I'm of Cephas, I follow Peter. Cephas was another name for Peter. Uh, others said, I'm of Paul. And the really spiritual people would say, oh, no, no, we, we follow Jesus. But the way it was expressed was just as divisive as somebody who followed Peter or Paul or Apollos or whoever the other leaders may have been. The fact is that we have certain preferences does not divide us as a church. We need to be embraceive and inclusive in our faith. Uh, I want to be a biblical Christian. I don't want to... I want to go straight down the straight and narrow way. I don't want to be in this ditch or that ditch. And when we follow people, we usually end up in the ditch someplace. When we're keeping our eyes on the goal and move towards it, that's where we make progress towards the kingdom. Obviously, what was happening in this church here, their celebration of the Lord's Supper had turned into something quite different from what was originally intended. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we will be celebrating Palm Sunday, and we'll be having communion. And at that point, we will be addressing uh, how Jesus first instituted the Lord's Supper and why. 
and it's already implied in what we're doing here today. But uh, what they had done, they had turned the communion service into something maybe a little bit like our potluck dinners that we have. And it's, it's always fun when we have a potluck and we, we have lots of food. Everybody contributes something, put it on a long table. And, and the biggest problem I have at, at a potluck is knowing what to select and how much to select when I first start because when I get to the really good stuff, my plate is already full. And you, you don't have that problem, I'm sure. So here's what was happening. They had turned the Lord's Supper into a communal meal, into what was called an agape meal, a love meal, from the Greek word agape, uh, into a koinonia festival, uh, an experience where it was meant to be bringing everybody together, celebrating together, and then ending up with the Lord's Supper. Why would they do that? Well, because when Jesus first instituted the Lord's Supper, it was at the tail end of the Passover meal. They had a full meal. Okay, there was a Passover lamb that had been slaughtered. All of those things were part of the Jewish uh, religious ceremony. And then at the end, he takes the elements of that, the wine and the matzah, which, which is really kind of an unleavened bread, a flat pancake-like substance, and he breaks it and gives thanks and distributes it and then he passes around the chalice with the wine, and he says, this represents my broken body. At the time he did it, he was still there sitting alive in front of them, or, or uh, perhaps reclining in front of them. But he's saying, symbolically, this represents my broken body. This represents the blood that's, that's going to be spilled on your behalf. And it represents a new covenant relationship with God. And so... It was natural for the early church to want to combine the Lord's Supper with a a feast, a meal. But here's what had gone wrong. Instead of truly sharing with one another, everybody contributing something, and uh, uh, then for everybody to be able to participate, some rich people kept their portion for a little huddle over here of rich people, and they gorged themselves while the poorer people who couldn't contribute so much to the communal meal would be basically watching and eating whatever meager rations they had. So instead of enhancing fellowship, koinonia, which means that you contribute and you receive from the relationship and the fellowship, they accentuated the differences. They made those folks feel like they didn't count. And the rich people had no regard of that. In fact, uh, I remember being at a a banquet, uh, which was self-served, long table, had lots and lots of food. And the first few men who were in a hurry to get to to the table loaded their plate so high that I stood there and I said, man, it looks like they haven't eaten in weeks. You know, who is that hungry in Canada? And uh, I, at that point, determined in that church, I would always be the last one to go through the lineup. And I had lots of people saying, come on, Pastor, come on. No, no, you guys eat. I don't need it that badly. <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'll pick up whatever is left. Because I felt grieved by the disregard of these people who 
had no sense of proportion. And this is what Paul is seeing here. Some rich members scorched themselves, the poor watched, and perhaps even were envious of what was going on. And so that kind of situation does not bring about unity. In fact, the very opposite. So in verse 20, he goes on. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. They thought they were. For when you are eating, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. So there was a lot of movement here going on. And as a result, he says, one remains hungry and another gets drunk. What? They got drunk in church? Well, because in the Jewish system, of course, when they would celebrate, there was always wine. And uh, to this day, Jewish people, when they have a meal, a family meal and so on, there's always wine on the table. And then they will toast each other, l'chaim, l'chaim, to life, to life. Uh, it's, it's, it's a blessing that is expressed with a chalice or, or, or a glass of wine in your hand. And, and, and these folks here didn't just have a little cup of wealth grape juice, but they actually drank a big glass and perhaps more than one. And so Paul says, this is totally unacceptable. It, it, it seems like their, their meetings had derailed from what Jesus had instituted as the Lord's Supper, which was in memory of, of his accomplishment on the cross. And uh, we may not have this particular problem because we're not passing out wine, we're not gorging ourselves, and we're not competing for it. In fact, we, we, we carefully and gently try to pass on the tray to the next person and the next person to make sure that everyone can participate. Because as a church, we celebrate what we call the open communion, where everyone who is a believer, regardless of faith background in terms of Christian faith, is welcome as long as they have a right relationship with God. That's the only criteria, and we'll get to that. So we don't have this problem. But it would be very easy for us as a congregation to have a problem between young and old, to have a problem between worship style, one or the other to have a problem with theological, um, again, persuasion, because some of us may be more right than others who are more left in terms of theology. And we need to understand, as a church, we're neither this nor that. We need to be embracive, uh, embracing each other and, and working together on a biblical basis. What does the Word actually teach? That's the criteria. So even as we are looking for a new senior pastor, we're looking for one who's a biblical preacher, whose cues will be what does the word say and who can explain it and who will research and pray over his messages to help us grow in faith and in the knowledge and in grace of God. Now I want you to notice how direct Paul is in his approach to the problem. Verse 22. He's just talked about the abuse. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. That's pretty strong language. He's chiding them for their attitude, for their actions. He's saying, here you are, 
at, at one of the most holy moments in the life of the church, celebrating the Lord's Supper, focusing on the cross, focusing on all that it stands for, that Jesus, he, the eternal Son of God, he who knew no sin, was willing to be made sin for us so that we would have a right relationship with his heavenly Father. And you turn it into debauchery, into a competition, into an attitudinal struggle between one group or another in the church. There's no way he can possibly praise them for that. In fact, he is basically scolding them. Now, as I already said, we celebrate an open communion. Uh, if you are here today as a guest, as a, as a uh, someone that does not normally is part of our congregation, if you have a right relationship with Jesus, if you know that your sins are forgiven because of what he accomplished, you're welcome at the Lord's table. It's not our table, it's his table. And we welcome you at that. But we take this very seriously. And so we always try to remind people that uh, uh, before we partake, regardless who it is, it could be any member of the church or any guest in our midst, uh, we, we try to remind you that we are individually responsible to examine ourselves, to search our own heart before God, before we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, so that we do not partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, as Paul says later on in verses 27 to 30. Because if we did that, he says, then you're eating and drinking harm to yourself, judgment on yourself. So as a result, he gives the instructions that we, almost every time we celebrate, we, we use those few verses. The instructions, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. How did he receive it from the Lord? Well, down through the chain of witnesses, those apostles who were present, his disciples who were present when Jesus first instituted it, and they passed it on to every church beyond that that was created afterwards after he had died and risen and gone to heaven. And the Lord, uh, this is what he says, and he's now quoting what he has been told. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What Paul is trying to get across to the Corinthians in this instruction is that's what this is all about. Not feasting, not um, competing with each other. It's coming to the table with a penitent heart, with, with a sense of I am a sinner and the only right I have to be here is because by God's grace I've been forgiven of my sin. And I'm no longer a sinner who is uh, continuing to sin willfully and deliberately and, and, and uh, brazenly. If I do sin, the Holy Spirit will nudge my heart and will tell me, see, this was wrong. This action or this word or what, whatever you said or did, and my responsibility is to be quick in my response and say, yes, Lord, I agree with you. And so John tells us that if we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I can come to the table having made things right with God, knowing that it's not because of me that I'm right with God, it's because of what he did for me and the efficacy of his blood shed for me. And so uh, I come with an attitude here of, of wanting to take this as a celebration of what Christianity is all about at the very heart, at the very core of the message. Um, there, there are five things that help us to think about the significance of the Lord's Supper. It doesn't take us long to get there. First one is that we need to recognize that the communion memorializes our Lord's supreme sacrifice. It's in memory of what Jesus did that we do this. And uh, uh, we do this by reflecting in our minds on what Jesus suffered from the very time of his arrest right through the, the, the horrible uh, beatings that he took and, and the abuse that he took and his ultimate death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, and eventual ascension. As we reflect on all of this uh, and visualize in our minds, this is what it cost him to set me free. And this is why we do that when we reflect on verses 24 and 25. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me and also the cup. The second thing that we need to remember and recognize is that Christ's death was absolutely necessary for our salvation. Um, Remember that uh, Peter proclaimed at Pentecost in that great sermon where he talked to Jewish audience uh, and some 3,000 people were converted and added to the church in that one service alone. But he clearly expressed Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by men or to men by which we must be saved. So what he is saying, there is absolutely no other way. And that reflects what Jesus clearly said to his disciples earlier in John chapter 14, verse 6, when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no one else. No one comes to the Father. And I always stop there because I remind myself, when he says no one, he means absolutely no one can come to the Father except through me. So Jesus is the only way. His death was absolutely necessary. His death was foreshadowed in all of the Old Testament sacrificial services where people would have to offer something appropriate to the sin they had committed. And whether it was a praise offering, whether it was a sin offering, whether it was uh, for a special occasion, uh, it, it always meant the death of an animal. It could be as, as big as a bullock uh, and as small as turtle doves, but it had to be life and blood that had been spilled and destroyed. And that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when, when Adam and Eve first sinned and uh, God provided a blood sacrifice to, to provide skins for them to cover their nakedness and their sin when they had attempted to do it their own way with fig leaves, which was not very satisfactory. And prior to that, in their innocence, they never had anything to hide. But now, all of a sudden, we have a guilty conscience. Why? Because all of us are sinners 
by nature and sinners by choice. We may not even consciously choose to sin. You don't have to teach a little child to be bad, to behave badly. It just comes natural. Why? Because they were born into a sinful race of people. And so when, when, when Paul uh, talks about uh, this whole issue that Christ's death was absolutely necessary for, for us, um, we need to take time to consider the many ways in which God has changed our lives for better since we first trusted in Jesus. The third point here is simply this, that Jesus instructed his followers to remember him with the bread and the cup. And so when he instituted the Lord's Supper and said, this is my body, this is uh, my blood shed for you, uh, he is expecting us to do that perpetually until he comes. Now, for some people, uh, some churches do that every Sunday. We do it once a month, always on the second Sunday of the month, usually. Um, I worked with a congregation years ago when I was planting a new church up in uh, Red Lake, Ontario. And this group, because most of their workers were out working on various Indian reserves, they brought all their workers together once a year to do the Lord's Supper. But uh, most churches probably do it at least once a month, like we do. Uh, But however often we do, the focus should always be the same. The focus is not on us. It is on Jesus and what he has provided. And, and then uh, number four, Paul warns us that when we do come to the Lord's Supper, we must approach the Lord's Supper, Supper and the Lord's Table in a worthy manner. So it, it, it behooves us to search our minds, our hearts, for any unrepented sin before we partake of the Lord's Supper. That's why I like to provide a moment of silence where we can actually say, Lord, is there anything that I have done today, yesterday, this past week that has offended you, that that has somehow made a mockery of the fact that you've redeemed me and I'm a child of God and should be uh, living with the characteristics of my heavenly Father imprinted upon my heart and my life? And most of us, probably have to confess that it happens more frequently than we'd like to admit. Sometimes I get up in the morning and I have the best of intentions. I commit my life to the Lord and it doesn't take very long before something upsets me and my response may not be the most appropriate at that point. So I need to confess that. As soon as the Lord says, Seek, this is wrong. I need to say, yes, Lord, I agree with you. Please forgive me of my sin, because he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we confess it. So Paul goes on here to say that there are some serious consequences if we come to the Lord's table unprepared. Verse 27, so then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, meaning that they have not reflected on what this is about. They're just taking it, another piece of bread or another cup of, uh, whether it's wine or, or uh, grape juice. Uh, if we do that, he says, we will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread, drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, that's the crux of it, eat and drink judgment on themselves. 
there are serious consequences if I abuse the Lord's table. There are serious consequences if I come with a divided heart, when I'm pulled in both directions and I have not fully yielded to the Lord. Now, it doesn't take long to recognize that and to respond to that because you don't have to fall on your knees. You don't have to make a great demonstration of it. But in your heart, you can say, Lord, I understand that I'm not worthy of this, but you make me worthy. Please apply the blood of the Lord Jesus to my heart, to my life, to my attitudes, to my thinking, and allow me to be the kind of person that you desire for me to be. And finally, when we do that, the Lord's Supper will not only draw us closer to God, but closer to one another. The closer we come to the Lord, the closer we come together in unity. Unity is not uniformity. doesn't mean we all have to think the same doesn't mean we all have to like the same thing. But unity is the byproduct of moving together in the right direction. And that direction always has to be upward and onward in our pilgrimage with the Lord. So we need to be praying that God will help us to confess our sins, to express our love and appreciation for him, and, and allow him to draw us closer. This is what he says in verse 30 down to 32 that, the fact that they have taken the Lord's Supper in vain, the fact that they have abused the Lord's table, this is the church in Corinth now, okay? He says, that is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep, which is a euphemism for the fact that they died prematurely. Why? Because they were out of fellowship with God, that they partook of the meal without regard of what what it represented in in, in the fact that Jesus died in order for us to celebrate this, in order for us to experience forgiveness. And he says in verse 31, but if we judged ourselves, meaning if we would be more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord at this point, And remember, he's talking to believers. He's not talking to the world who's lost in sin and will be condemned to hell forever. He's talking to believers who have a right to be in heaven, not because they're good, but because a good Savior died for their sin. So he says, when we are judged by the Lord, talking to believers, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So when God allows discipline in our lives, it can come in a number of different ways. But it always means the reason why it comes is because we have been faithless, because we have not walked with Jesus. We have not had a trust relationship by which we were easily guided in the right direction. And so he concludes with a serious warning. So then, my brothers. See, even Paul had a so what. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. That was their problem. They, they, they competed and they tried to get to the trough first and no regard to the people who couldn't get there. You should, he means, in other words, you should all eat together. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, 
it may not result in judgment. And then he says, I'm not done with you yet, because when I come, I'll have some more directions for you. 